of Matthew. Then the Pharisees went out or went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him <clears throat> along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amen. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are here this morning to, we have worshipped you and we have entered into your presence. And I just pray this morning now that uh, you would speak to us from your word and uh, may you be honored, may you be glorified, and may we continue to worship you in spirit and truth this morning. Amen. So uh, this is, as you know, the well-known passage in the New Testament that um, where Jesus makes this declaration about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And this has been the uh, linchpin of a great deal of political and uh, social policy uh, you know, the, the people have used this passage to uh, talk about church of state separation a lot. This is uh, something that is sort of almost like become known as a little bit of a proof text for that in many respects, for that idea. And um, so the modern political implications of this verse are that on the surface seem pretty serious. They seem pretty you know, like Jesus may be establishing something here, something important, uh, you know, regarding government and so forth. Uh, there is, um, e even, even atheists uh, read this verse and they say, well, you know, that's a good verse. Uh, you know, that's a, I actually heard one make the comment on a podcast. I don't normally listen to atheists, don't get me wrong, but, <laughs> but, but I, I did because I wanted to hear this. But, uh, so uh, this particular um, commenter, you know, made this statement that this verse is a huge lever for separation of church and state to be able to separate politics from religion. Um, the irony of all this, though, is that he's that person is completely incapable of seeing this passage in light of Christ. He can't do it because he doesn't. He's not a believer. He's, he's, his heart is hardened. So there is a lot more going on here than just that, than just some political uh, statement or some policy statement that for us to base policy on or something like that. There's a lot more going on than 
just a, a teaching to guide governments about the separation of church and state. Uh, Caesar, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and God's what is God's. Now, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit here and go ahead and tell you why that's a problem and why that doesn't work. Why, well, it works government-wise, but why this isn't really about that. Does Caesar really own anything? No. There is nothing to render unto Caesar that God does not already own, you see. Um, and so from a spiritual standpoint, from a standpoint of, of uh, how to live, yes, okay, we submit to our civil authorities. Uh, yes, we do have to pay taxes or we get locked up, right? There's, there's consequences. But that's not the spiritual principle that this is about, believe it or not, in, in my opinion. I think this is about something much deeper. Like most of the Gospels, like most of the New Testament, like much of the Bible, period, it's really trying to teach us something about our Lord and Savior. It's really time to, trying to show us something about Him. And so, let's go a little deeper into this and see what Jesus is trying to tell us about Himself and about His role and about our role and how we interact with Christ. Okay? And again, none of this is meant to, to say that... I'm, I'm not going there this morning. What I'm saying is on church and state. That's not where we want to go. That's a discussion for another time. But this morning, I want to focus on what this says about our Lord and Savior. So, um, let's just start off with the, with the passage here. So, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. This is uh, uh, verse... What verse is that? Yeah, 10. Um, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Now, this is interesting because the Pharisees, you know, we need to remember as we read this passage, the Pharisees actually went somewhere and they actually sat down and they planned this whole thing out. All right, this wasn't like a spur-of-the-moment conversation that happened, how this played out. They, they were behind all this and this had been plotted. This had been planned beforehand. Um, now, this is also one of those passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, that really and truly, and I know we've talked about this in other passages, but sometimes in parts of it, you really, really need to kind of at least look up a little bit in the original language, languages to know what's really going on here. So the Pharisees are actively working on this. They're plotting how to entangle him in his logos, in his words. Uh, the Greek word is logos, or logon. So, how to entangle him in his logos, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Now, as you know, in, uh, in the New Testament world, there were lots of political groups. Uh, there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, are the ones that we're probably most familiar with, but there were other ones too. And they, the people at that, in that culture were very familiar with uh, all of these political factions. The Herodians were one. And uh, some scholars, or we don't really know for sure, but some scholars believe the Herodians were, um, well, obviously they, they were pro-Herod. They were pro-Herod, you know, but they even went so far, likely, to see Herod as the promised Jesus Messiah. So... And if you think about it, 
Uh, here's Herod. He, he comes and he's the king of the Jews. He rebuilds, the, he builds a second temple for the Jews. He does all these things. He, seem, he seems uh, friendly to their cause, friendly to, to let them uh, practice their faith the way they want to and so forth. So that's not necessarily a shocking thing that they would think that if you really stop and think about it. Uh, obviously, Herod was not the Messiah. We know that. But they, uh, they, kind of, they kind of believed that he was. And so they believed that that was the way that, that the, the Messiahship, the coming of the Messiah was happening right then and there with Herod. On the other end of the spectrum, you have what are known as the Zealots. And the Zealots uh, believed in overthrowing Herod as quickly as possible and they wanted to institute a uh, Jewish theocracy. Uh, go back more to what they saw, you know, what they saw in the Old Testament, uh, in the scriptures in the Old Testament. So, and they believed that this probably was going to have to be done by force. And so, you have this going on, and Jesus was well aware of all this. This was influencing their culture from all directions, all this. Um, and so, everything that happens in this this event, this conversation that plays out, has this going on in the background, politically, sociologically, and so forth. So, um, so you also had the, the Pharisees, and in this case, the Pharisees, they plotted, and they said, well, let's bring around, along the Herodians, because if we could catch Jesus in saying something politically bad, then we could get him in trouble with the authorities. But also... If he says something that, you know, is more along the lines of don't pay taxes uh, or, or pay taxes, that will, uh, you know, that will put him at odds with the zealots and other Jewish folks that believe that they didn't need to follow the government, follow Herod. So this was quite a, a, uh, this was quite a well thought out plot, you might say, that, that they were getting into. So um, they sent their disciples to him, the Pharisees, along with the Herodians. And they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, but you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, in the next verse, you see, it tells us right there, what's really going on. This is doublespeak. This is uh, fake, fakeness coming out. This is duplicity uh, being carried out. Now, we've talked about this before. It's real easy to, in fact, I heard Connor mention this a week or two ago. It's real easy to uh, beat these Pharisees over the head and say, you know, well, of course they were duplicitous. They were Pharisees, you know, and, and so forth. But, is not our whole world system revolve around duplicity? Life in general? Um, everything revolves around duplicity in our culture, in our lives. We were raised in such a way in our lives from the get-go in, in a culture, in a world, that if you're not duplicitous, you probably won't make it, believe it or not. That's not to uh, say it's okay, but it's just to acknowledge the reality that this, is, this happens in life, in everybody's life. And you and I do it too. 
whether we, whether we uh, admit it or not, this duplicitousness. It may not be this overt, but yet we do it in conversations. We do it in uh, the way that we deal with other believers, the way that we deal with uh, non-believers, wherever. This is, this is the way people operate. Um, on one hand, we could say, well, we shouldn't be duplicitous. Uh, we, should, we should instead be authentic. And we should, uh, you know, I, I've seen people that take this to such a degree that they don't speak to visitors. Or they don't speak to people coming in because they believe if I'm speaking to them, I'm just doing it because it's the thing to do. I'm doing it because you're supposed to speak to visitors in church. So let's not do that because that's not authentic. Okay. Uh, that's wrong, see? That's taking it too far the other direction. So we always take things one way or the other, and we never, we just never get it right for some reason. So, so, the, uh, so Jesus knows what's going on here, and he sees right through it. He, he is the one man that lived his life in history that was not duplicitous. He didn't do it. And he, he was the one man who lived his life and was not a hypocrite. Uh, the accusation of hypocrisy is one of the most favorite things that people like to throw because it's very, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of an easy, it's kind of a cheat, you know, when you're, when you're interacting with someone to call them a hypocrite. Because everybody's a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. There's not a one of us that's not. So, the only person that wasn't a hypocrite is our Lord and Savior. He, he was not. But Jesus can call them out as hypocrites because first of all, he's not a hypocrite. He is sinless. And second of all, he's telling the truth about them. He knows their hearts. He knows their intentions. And he knows that they're being malicious here in the way that they're doing it. <clears throat> so it says, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? I mean, he just said it right to their face. This is quite... Quite, uh, quite a moment if you think about it. So, but you also have to re remember that the Pharisees going out and at this point they're plotting how to kill him. They're plotting that the ball is rolling here and they're, they're plotting on how to get rid of Jesus. And that's really what this is about because they're hoping to be able to either turn him over to the authorities or find a reason to kill him under uh, Old Testament law. So, for blasphemy. So that, that's, their, that's their goal. And so Jesus calls them a hypocrite because they are being hypocritical. And um, <clears throat> so hypocrisy, as we talked about, is really, or duplicitousness and hypocrisy, and they're kind of the same thing in some ways. Uh, it's a form of lying. It's a form of living a deception, being deceptive with each other. Uh, when we do that, and we, we may spend our entire lives trying to learn to not be that way. Uh, I haven't got there yet. Uh, maybe I will someday. I hope so. I, I try to live, try to hope to not be duplicitous in the things I do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just, just something we all struggle with. There's not a one of us in this room that hasn't struggled with this and may not be struggling with it at times now. Jesus didn't struggle with it. He... Uh, he had no problem with it, obviously. So, it's a form of deception, therefore it is not a godly trait. Uh, 
again, it, it's, it has much more in common with lying than the truth. So, some of the things they're saying here about Jesus with a false front of attempting to flatter Jesus, in this case, are not even true. They, they said, we know you don't care about opinions. Well, I think Jesus cared very much about their opinions. Jesus cared very much about what was in their heart. And by calling them hypocrites, in a sense, he's acknowledging he cares about their opinions. So, they're, they're not even correct in what they say there, even, even not realizing they're not correct. So, you know, they know that he's gotten a reputation for being someone who, who speaks his mind, who isn't swayed, as they say here, and, you know, who isn't, you know, he sits down with, with tax collectors and people that, that, you know, none of the other people in their, in their circles really wanted to sit down with and have meals with and so forth. So, they say you're not swayed by appearances. Well, this is, this is because Jesus lives a life that is sinless. And there's, he, he isn't swayed by appearances because it just he's not duplicitous like that. He's not a hypocrite. He, it's not there. So, um, they put to him what may be then the most publicly contentious issue that they can try to pin him down on in the situation, in front of the people, in front of these factioning groups that are there. And they hope they've got him in a situation where he's going to say the wrong thing to somebody. He's going to say something that's going to cause him to get in trouble here or cause him to get in trouble here. They think they've, they think they've finally got him somewhere that he can't go right down the middle. He's got to, he's got to do this. So, but Jesus doesn't play the game. He doesn't have to go down the middle. He doesn't have to go here. He doesn't have to go here. Um, so Jesus sees right through it. Now, this is at this point I want to point some things out. Um, Jesus asks for a coin. He said, bring to me a coin. And they bring him a coin. And it's a denarius. Now, I... Uh, I tried to find, as to bring this morning, the shiniest penny I could possibly find. Uh, and this was pretty shiny, pretty new. And it has, it has a uh, carving of someone on this penny. And it has an inscription on this penny, inscriptions on it as well. Not unlike the coin that was shown to Jesus. Uh, it probably didn't look exactly like this, but it had a carving and it had an inscription on it. And uh, when it's new, it's shiny, it's radiant. It, it, you know, it has a certain glory to it even. So you may kind of see where I'm going with this, but uh, Jesus says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, uh, what he really said there, if we translate the Greek more carefully and more literally, he said, whose icon is this and whose epigraph is on this coin? Whose carving, whose icon is this? Whose, uh, uh, whose written word is printed on this coin as an epigraph? The word epigraph comes from the Greek, by the way, so that's why I use that word. Of course, as we talk about Sunday school, icon comes from, it comes from the Greek, too. So... 
So what he is really asking here is who, what, what, what icon are you really talking about here? What icon are you talking about here? What inscription are you talking about here on this? Now, this was, this is a, the fact that Jesus asked these questions that have obvious answers, and obviously Jesus knew the answer, uh, and everybody knew the answer, is an indicator to us that he's trying to show something and teach something by this. Because you don't, you don't typically say, you don't typically ask rhetorical questions like that, obvious questions like that, unless you're trying to make a point. So this is a key to us reading this passage, that Jesus is trying to teach something here beyond what is immediately apparent. So they respond, they said, it's Caesar's image, it's Caesar's icon. Um, and of course, Caesar is a title. It doesn't matter whether which Caesar it was on the coin, uh, you know, which one, whether it was Tiberius or whether or whatever, it doesn't matter. It was, a, uh, the title was the Caesar, the Kaiser of the Roman Empire. And so, they're, uh, and they say, this is Caesar's. And he says to them, therefore, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, let me read a couple of passages for you because I think that particularly the second passage, really, you need to read that passage to understand what Jesus is really getting at here. First of all, the first one is Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the icon of the invisible God. Jesus is. Not Caesar, Jesus. Uh, the second passage I want to talk about is from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word, the logos, of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the, the radiance, the glory, the shininess. He sat down at the right hand of the real radiance, the real radiance. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, Jesus is trying to teach us something about himself here. Not just make a political statement. He's trying to teach us that he is the image of God. The image of the invisible God. And to see God, to experience God, to enter into a relationship with God, it goes through him because he is the image of God. He is, he is the, if you want to know what God looks like, it's Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's, he's the way, because God is invisible according to the scriptures. So if you want to see him, Jesus is the way. Jesus is what is the, is the image of God. Now this was the image of Caesar. This was the image of, uh, this was the icon of Caesar and Interestingly enough, um, 
when it says in Hebrews that he is the radiance of glory and the exact imprint, and that's the ESV, and I think that's, I really like that translation because I've read other translations uh, don't quite get that right. They say this is the writing or something like that. No, the imprint means it's actually carved. So it's a carving uh, of... So Hebrews is saying that Christ is the exact carving of the nature of God. So this illuminates what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22 when he holds up the coin and says, whose carving is this? It's Caesar's, you see. Um, but Jesus is saying, but Jesus is revealing to us by the whole New Testament that he is the carving of the invisible God. He is the imprint. He is the exact imprint, the exact representation, the exact icon of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word, which is also, if we take the earthly uh, analogy of the coin, the, uh, the word is printed, words are printed there uh, on the coin by the word of his power. And indeed, in an earthly sense, if we go with continue the analogy Jesus made, um, these words have meaning. You know, it's printed on here that this is worth one cent. Now, that's not much these days, obviously. But, uh, you know, you could take a silver dollar and get the same thing. Uh, the words carry authority in this situation. And that's, that's the most mundane earthly example of that probably I can think of. And Jesus used that to tell us something here about himself. Um, but he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Whereas this fake God, this Caesar, who, you know, they were using that as the example here. Um, his power, yeah, it was inscribed on a likeness, on an image, on an icon. But it's not real power. It's not, it, it's power in the sense of of earthly, but it's nothing compared to the power of Christ. Nothing, nothing that uh, Caesar ever could do would happen outside of God's will, you see, because he's, he's sovereign. So this is the real majesty on high. It is the real radiance, the real shininess, the real brightness is Christ. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is most excellent, is more excellent than theirs, as the passage says. So, um, so what, you know, sometimes we like to, we like to, at the end of a sermon, we like to kind of think, okay, well, uh, what does this mean? How does this affect how we live? Uh, what's, what does it mean to bring this home, you might say? Um, well, how we live, I think, is to constantly seek the radiance of Christ. Constantly seek the glory of God in Christ and be drawn to that. Be drawn to that radiance rather, rather than the radiance of this world. Whether the, rather than the radiance of this stuff. Rather than the radiance of things that uh, would pull our attentions away from him. From him the idols in our culture, and so forth. He wants us to focus on Him and His radiance because He's the real thing. He's the real deal, unlike the rest of it. So.
May the Lord bless you and keep you.